this podcast now boasts its own Patreon page. Become a patron and join us in being a node to help spread awareness and hope. Details at patreon.com slash having a cuppa. In this episode of Having a Cuppa, we help usher the new year with the auspices of a return guest. The beloved Tamar Medford is a multi-hyphenate who boasts many titles and is a triple threat in the world of entrepreneurship. Entrepreneur, coach, writer and author may be some of her most prominent tricks of the trade, as well as being the host of the ever-popular podcast, The Road beyond recovery. Tamar and I have a fun and often brutally insightful conversation about Tamar's mindset beyond recovery, which extends to other nominal factors, namely codependency, and we even delve into a new and exciting chapter that awaits her, exchanging her title of Miss to Mrs. Our audience is invited to stream The Road Beyond Recovery, which is available on all major outlets, and you are welcome to follow Miss Medford on Instagram, the handle at The Road Beyond Recovery. After this conversation, you'll enter 2022 a whole lot more lighter and brighter. After all, we're on The Road Beyond Recovery. This week, Tamar Medford enjoys a refill. Here we go. Be prepared. Five, four, three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome. This is Having a Cuppa. Get ready for the show. A cup of your finest brew, thanks, love. Cheers, you're a gem. <sighs> round and round we go, where we stop, nobody knows. Best get to it then. Chris Snell. I've been involved in the media industry for almost 10 years, but what interests me most is the triumph of the human spirit. So off I go to parts unknown. This is the journey. The road 
bestowed upon us will lead us to the truths of the heart, taking us to destinations far and wide. From the US, the neighbors to the north, the UK, and everywhere else in the fray. Join me, sit back for the ride. Good tidings we bring. We're having a cuppa. British Columbia. Tammy! How are you? It's good to see you, mate. I'm well and you. I am doing really well, thanks. Jeez, how long has it been? Ten bloody years? I think so. It's been a long time. I think, do I have any gray hair? <laughs> uh, none whatsoever. None whatsoever. Stand up quickly. Let me see that badge on your, on your rain blazer there. Did you start merchandising? I did a while ago, yeah. Gee, it's got the whiz. big logo on the back. And it's got, it's by Stay Stop, so Jackson, he reached out, and it's got the cool recovery, you know, it's a recovery apparel. It's official. Look at you growing up, eh? I know, I feel like I'm getting to be a big girl now. Nah, but, I mean, you deserve it. I mean, if I think of, I've been keeping a, a canny eye on the work that you've been doing, you know, and um, watching you grow from where you once were at a sprightly mm -hmm. start and and getting engaged and all that you really deserve it you've done a lot of hard work well thank you i feel i'm currently doing the codependency steps and right. i have learned so much about myself and relationships and how i let other people affect me mm. and you know it's even being super independent is a sign of codependency and i'm Mm. I am actually gonna probably run um, a codependency step group in the in the new year because I think everybody in the program should do a codependency set of steps because it's actually shocking. Mm. Mm. I get you. And it's it, it starts to make sense of things, right? How you know mm. we're you know step two and three, we turn our will and our lives over to the care of God, but as a codependent, yeah. you also need to learn to trust yourself. And your intuition, because if you don't, you start to get that, you know, you want to take that control back. So it explains that. And I'm like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> it ticks all the boxes. Yeah. I had, strangely enough, I had the same conversation with one of the girls. Uh, she works for me as a, as a camera girl or a cinematographer. Mm -hmm. And just out of the clear blue, we were talking about um, the concept of marriage and having children and you know, how society's values have changed, especially uh, with regards to 
approaching, you know, the concept of getting just into a normal relationship and then there's always that threat of codependency and whatnot. And I did say at one point or another that it is imperative, especially if you've been in a relationship where there's been all sorts of turmoil, loss of family, manipulation on all sorts of levels. There comes a time where you have to rediscover yourself. Now, I'm going to say something that might sound really dodgy on the offset, but uh, especially with women who are being the most vulnerable targets, that it is absolutely imperative that they rediscover their womanhood. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't, I'm not saying that because of the fact that you've been cloistered into a relationship where you were beaten witless and you were belittled that there was not even an inkling of you left that now you should go about and fornicate everything on two legs. Not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. If I could use you as a finite example, what is it yeah. that, that Tamar enjoys? What did Tamar enjoy before she got involved with Person X? What made Tamara the woman that she is today? That's the sort of question I always ask. And I get such dumb-looking, dumbfounded sort of looks on their faces like, what the bloody hell are you talking about? But ultimately, as we delve into the subject more and more, it's a light starts to clamber on. So kudos on you for doing that. And tell me, if uh, you were to be running this thing, would it be exclusively for women or would it be for unisex? I would like to do it unisex because I think that it applies to everybody and it'll it can make sense of why we do what we do. Oh yeah. Right? And it talks about even step two in goal setting. Like I've never heard the steps ever talk about goal setting and it talks about you know like we set goals and then we try to like hold on to them tight and we try to control every aspect and every step along the way but how about we set a goal and then we okay i'm gonna do these things every day the rest is beyond my control oh yeah well said interesting (laughs) so (laughs) i'm like okay but it really like the some of the things we learn in aa is is different from the codependency stuff. Now I understand why my my second sponsor said tomorrow you need to go to Al-Anon. And I was like, I don't need to go to Al-Anon. I mean, I'm not even <laughs> at the time I was single, right? So I'm like, why do I need to go to Al-Anon? Like I'm not living with an alcoholic. And now I get why because the codependency aspect of it. And it's interestingly enough as well, when you're talking about codependency, especially if you're in a single phase, because I can identify with this in active dark days, the whole thing with codependency is you yearn for love and you yearn for acceptance. And you're willing to go, I'm going to say this in inverted commas, you want to go to any lengths to get it, right? Yeah. But when you don't get it, two things ultimately happen. You spiral into a depression of I feel unloved, what is wrong with me? all those 20 questions and often it can even boil over to not only just substance abuse but even pornography addiction i find yeah yeah absolutely it go it it spreads into everything like i had a thing recently where i had a couple women that i'm fairly close to in recovery but one of them has always like she doesn't make it or her men that's right she was actually my first sponsor and you know, but I learned the difference between a caregiver and a caretaker and the friendships I'm used to in my life are very caregiving. It's giving with love, that support, 
And so these two women, I actually realized, are both caretakers, meaning that they're always doing it for their own motives. And, mm. you know, love them dearly. But when this whole thing with Jean happened, you know, my, my foundational group of friends were like, hey, what's going on? I saw your picture on social media. Like, call me. You guys look so happy. Very supportive, right? Very, how can, mm. what can I do to support you? And these two actually had started to step away a little bit. And... You know, like you didn't tell us every single detail of everything, right? Because when everything had happened and I had to move suddenly, both of them were like, okay, we're gonna help her get organized. We're gonna help her decorate her place. We're gonna do all this, which is so great. But I never realized that in the codependency triangle, there's the, the what's it called? The victim, the- Abuser. Uh, the abuser, right? And then the, the savior, the, the lifesaver. Yeah. And so in my parent, my relationship upbringing, when I was in the victim, my mom was always that lifesaver, right? My right. dad was always the culprit. And when you have that triangle, and I realized, like, because Gene was the bad guy, I was the victim. And so guess what? I turned to someone who's a caretaker right. to kind of meet that need that I'm not getting in my relationship. And I was like, what? Oh, but you know what, it also comes a time, especially we were talking now about caregivers and caretakers. There's a fine line I find in that category, if to, for lack of a better word, because you want to trust people. I think this is more applicable to extroverts and empaths more than anybody else. Yeah. And you and I fall under that umbrella that uh, you want to trust people extensively, wholeheartedly, without cause and effect. But when the scars start to show or better put when the cracks start to show forgive me for that mispronunciation and you start to pull away all of a sudden you become the enemy and yeah. it has a butterfly effect perversely so in that when you come across someone who cares about you for you doesn't seek anything in return well you, then you start to doubt yourself where do you draw the line on how much to share and how much not to share in the beginning it yeah. can it can lead to a very uh, difficult course of affairs, I find. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's... <laughs> I said, I'm doing a step group right now with 27 other women, and I said, I feel like, you know, my onion was huge when I came into recovery, and I'm slowly peeling apart the layers, and then as soon as I do dove into the, the, the codependency, my onion just got double the size again. <laughs> <laughs> with brown, with brown uh, 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 onion peels and all. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have not found out about uh, who is my guest today, she's a good friend of mine, all the way from Vancouver, British Columbia. Podcast host, author, business coach, Tamar Medford. Tamar has been now sober for quite a while, has done extensive groundbreaking work, if I'm the only person to say so, it is the truth. And uh, we've become very, very close. We share a couple of passions, namely, we like to have a, have a good laugh. And apart from that, we share a very perverse fascination with the TV series Yellowstone. <laughs> mm, yeah, how we do. The first thing that I recall about Yellowstone, just as it veer topic completely, was just that character Rip Wheeler. I mean, the man clad in black. Have you ever heard the folktale of the of um, not the Pied Piper of Hamelin, the uh, the man clad in black? No. It's a it's a very common folktale about. Uh, 
a bad person who's committed misdeeds throughout all their life travels through a wandered road or a road less traveled and on the, along the way there's a man clad in black seated on a rock smoking a pipe and he's challenging the sinner to engorge with him in tobacco and eventually when this big puff of cloud of tobacco smoke is all around them all of a sudden the man clad in black is the devil so uh, ultimately that's how I would define Rip Wheeler because you don't know if he goes this way or that way but he's resourcefully defiant and he is um, uh, steadfastly loyal which I find extremely extremely provocative and he's a ladies man but he doesn't admit it yeah, I he's mean, very attractive <laughs> I mean well, I have to throw that in there <laughs> <laughs> he is but uh, believe it or not Carl Hauser who plays the character his father Wings Hauser uh, is fairly well known in my country because he made a lot of movies here and um, uh, 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 made a lot of good names for South African talent overseas in Hollywood and it just goes to show you know the world is ultimately presumptively and emphatically very very small I mean look at what we're doing now in the 21st century we're now communicating beyond borders via zoom to talk about everything that is supposed to be talked about in society but is actually whispered rather than spoken which is a weird phenomenon but then again if we're addicts what's the first common presumption we're madder than cut snake and we don't deserve a sniff but mm -hmm. on the flip side we are the most empathetic but then the normies can't seem to comprehend that <laughs> no they can't <laughs> like what's up with these people they're so nice they're so friendly one of them actually brings me chocolates and he doesn't want anything out of it what's going on here there's something wrong with this film <laughs> okay chocolate you're going a little overboard i would not bring someone chocolate and well i was just I would... using a silly a silly example okay, It'd be okay more like a like a cappuccino or maybe there you um, go or just a nice little no 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 that's also i was going to say like a nice <laughs> little card say have a nice day but <laughs> i think that would be chalked down to sexual harassment by today's terms mm -hmm. oh yeah but uh, tomorrow tell me something first of all you've had a lot of changes in your life i mean you left your job you started uh, the road beyond recovery a podcast i love listening to because it's so multifaceted. i mean you've spoken to a lot of friends that I've had uh, I've been done your show you've done my show in turn second time that you're doing this but ultimately you created a niche for yourself in the sense that not only are you gonna be like a business coach like another Richard Branson or another Tony Robbins but you you wanted to 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 give addicts former addicts rather a clear-cut blueprints on how to be a success in business which is uncharted territory, it must have scared the hell out of you when you started it. Oh, for sure. It was something actually my podcast coach had recommended to me because before COVID, I was really focused on health, right? And traveling for a living um, because I love food. I mean, I, I don't think there's some, there's a lot of things that I've been addicted to in my life. Food was one of them. So I cover an extensive ground, right? I mean, you know, that's why the chocolate thing, as soon as you said that, I all of a sudden felt that ism come back i'm like no we're not giving away the chocolate <laughs> so sorry about that that's something i still have to work on but well 
it's it's progress, right? So Absolutely. I just yeah, this is an area that I was so passionate about because relapse isn't part of my story and it's part of a lot of people's stories, but it's not yeah. a part of mine, I believe, because I discovered my purpose as a result of what I've been through, right? Like you said, like there's that stigma. There's still people that look at, oh, they're a drug addict, alcoholic. You know, we don't have to let that define us. But mm. I used to be ashamed of that. And I never wanted to talk about that, especially when it came to business. And I just thought, look at us. Like we are resilient. We're resourceful. Like if we took those same skills that we learned out there, like, I'm sorry, but if someone said, you know, Chris, you can't have that beer. Would you have settled for the, the word no? Not exactly. Putting it lightly. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? It's like, no, I'm going to go after that. And Get so here. I want to. Exactly. I want to teach people how to harness that, discover their purpose and create a life so good for themselves. They never want to go back because we can do amazing things. And that's, mm -hmm. it was scary going into that world. But at the same time, I thought, why not? Like, what do I have to lose? I didn't go through all this for nothing. Right. And it's one-on-one -on -one coaching that you offer. Both group and one-on-one, -on -one, actually. Oh, neat. And how big are yeah. the groups? Uh, sometimes we have anywhere from four to 10 people. And I find that when you get, you know, people in a room working on their mindset, right? Working on changing their brain and changing their beliefs, the stories that they share with each other, they almost, you know, we know about that in recovery is you get this hope and it's like, hey, they're going through exactly what I do. And so I love the group aspect of it. Don't get me wrong. I love the one-on-one -on -one too, but sure. there's, I love that collaboration. No, absolutely. Collaboration is key. And, you know, there's no I in team, needless to say, but there's still a part of me that hates teamwork because if, you, if you're forced to do it, you're forced to do it. There's just no two ways about it. But if you have three, three, three people on a team, for example, and you're the one doing all the work, then you're like, oh, you know what, just get out of my face. You're just being an annoyance and you're costing me more money than what you're supposed to be earning me. But then again, on the flip side, though, I can imagine with people who are in recovery, it's a completely different kettle of fish. Now, I want to ask this in a correlation to the group coaching and the one-on-one. -on -one. Do people actually sit with you and they confess their whole tale top to, uh, from top to bottom, back to front about how they mucked up and... Uh, do you provide them their source of on how to switch their mindset or how does it work exactly? So there, yes, there are a lot of people who will, because I think we naturally like to talk about ourselves. I mean, we're kind of really good at that, oh, especially yeah. when we realize that there's people that have been through what we've gone through and they've created these great lives for themselves. I mean, that gives sure. us hope, right? That's what brought us into, you know, these programs in the first place. And I find that a lot of people do like to share, right? And when they do start to share all the, the what they consider the dirt, which I consider the gold, oh, they, they nice. start to uncover, right, their patterns, why they do what they do, why they still think the way they think. And my job is to really get down to what beliefs are you still having that causes you to continuously repeat these patterns, right? Because, you know, we've all heard the saying, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're gonna continue to get what you've always gotten. Mm, and, mm. you know, we do the same things over and over and again, expect these different results. Mm. Well, 
how do we identify those patterns? How do we start to fix that? And how do we change our mindsets? So I think the backstory does have a lot to do with that, right? Because that's that's our story. That's our journey. Well, it's interestingly enough, I was just before we hopped on, I was watching this very interesting documentary about uh, some of Australia's most revered or most infamous criminals. And one of them, Russell Cox, actually turned his life around after 11 year uh, bout on the run. And he actively mentored young offenders in prison, which led to his early parole. And I kind of see it like that road to Damascus moment where we do just share out of pure instinct without even thinking, dare I say, not because we want sympathy, not because we want empathy for that matter. We want to educate, inform and entertain because it can be entertaining. I mean, Uh I'll regale the story to you to, to be completely transparent. It was in my second year of sobriety and it was just in the first year of COVID. Uh, Everything is locked down as it was uh, in the initial hard lockdown. And it's about a couple of days away from Christmas and I pull into the local superette just around the corner and just to get normal perishables, bread, milk, cigarettes, yada, yada, yada. And as I get outside to get back into my car, now bear in mind the streets were empty when I walked in there, but when I walked out, all of a sudden, a lady of the night is leaning against a wall. Now, clearly, when stuff like that happens, you start to panic. Well, at least I did. My hands started to get clammy and all I could think of is getting into my car. Too late, she spots me and she just goes in a succession of frenetic beats she goes hello 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 trying to get my attention i'm ignoring her top to bottom and eventually when i got into my vehicle by the 45th or 50th time that she said hello i just went goodbye bang and i knocked my door (laughs) shut (laughs) to get away from her (laughs) and this happened in sobriety mind you and i've got a bleed over from then like i used to get pulled over for for drunk driving and, and, and escape it mildly with a small little slap on the wrist. Like, for example, if I had a, a, a chip in my rear view window, they would find me for that. But now in sobriety, I continually get pulled over by cops and I still have to go through the breathalyzer. But every time I keep telling them I'm not drinking. Have you had similar episodes? I have, and actually, the, I remember the first time I went through a, a checkpoint, right? We have them here, especially this time of year. This is when they start to come out. I was actually super excited. I'm like, yes, a roadblock. Like, And I think probably the first, I don't know, I'd say three years of my sobriety, I never went through one. And I'm like, how is this even possible? Like, I could barely avoid one back in the days that I was drinking. Like, it was like, ah, no, again. And I was actually really excited. And I remember the very first time I actually went through a roadblock, I was with, you know, um, a friend of mine, a sponsor, and we'd actually gone to do the phone lines, right? We were giving back, doing some service work. Mm. And so there was four of us in the car driving back from the city. And it was, I think, 11:30 at night. You know, we were all really pumped because we had a lot of fun, right? It was, it was, it was a really good evening. And they're like, you know, ladies, have you had anything to drink? Because we were laughing like we were wasted, like we just we as were girls crying, do, right? I mean, that's what we do. And I, he's like, you know, have you been drinking? And we're like, no. He's like, are you sure? Like head right in the car. And, 
You know, I remember my, my sponsor actually looked over and said, actually, we're all sober and had shared what we did. But I was really excited to go through this roadblock. Like, please pull me out of the car and give me a breathalyzer. Like, please, I just want to blow completely sober. But, um, yeah, that's pretty exciting when you're you're not drinking. <laughs> no, absolutely. It's almost like you're going out looking for trouble, knowing that you're going to escape the hangman. I mean, yeah. when I was pulled over the last time, um, I used to work in late night radio from 10 in the evening until 1 in the morning. I believe in overseas they call it the homework shift. And I get pulled over by the cop and, um, you know, I don't know how your internal clock works. You're neither a lark or an owl in this business. Uh, but after you get off the air, you're bushed, you're mentally drained, you just want to go home. And uh, how I would shut off, you know, you have to mentally shut off to physically relax and get the adrenaline in your system settled is by just listening to calming music and i had an energy drink an empty can of of, of play in my drink holder and naturally of course alcoholics do that to try and hide inverted commas alcohol long story short get pulled over by the cop she asks me have i been drinking i said no ma'am i haven't what's that in your in your drink holder of your car i said it's an energy drink smell because it still has that lingering sense and energy yeah. drink. And she says, no, we're going to submit you to a breathalyzer. I thought, oh, goodness, here we go. And I get out. She blow, I blow into the breathalyzer. It's now easily one, two in the morning. My phone's going crazy. You know, mum wants to know where am I, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I blow in the first time. Eventually, she realizes that the batteries are flat on the <laughs> on the breathalyzer. So she had to go and get another one. And I had to repeat the process. Oh, okay, I see you haven't been drinking. And she extends her hand to apologize. But I was so pissed off from, from exhaustion that I actually squeezed her hand almost into paste to, <laughs> to show my annoyance. But, uh, I mean, there were also times in my, in my active dark days that I now look at initially with disgust. But I can laugh about it because it's not me anymore. I often say to my friends in recovery, be good, but don't be too good. What I mean by that is don't go over the edge, but start to enjoy life. Start to enjoy life for what it is and not necessarily what it can be. We all have ideas in our head about what life can be, and it's it's great because it gives you something to, to strive for. But the presence, the here and the now, is the most vital because it's the building blocks to get there. Um, often I find as well that you have to let go what you can't control and that includes people circumstances jobs and more often than not family your thoughts on that 100 percent agree i mean you know what we've learned in recovery is that you know and oftentimes i've just come to realize i was sharing earlier that you know i'm doing codependent i'm working on codependency and i'm nine and a half years into my recovery and so <laughs> You know, for me to admit that I'm powerless over the behaviors of others, right? And then mm. if I don't realize that I do, like, don't have control over this sometimes, things will become, like my head literally becomes unmanageable. And I still find myself sometimes wanting to fix things and wanting, because I'm very solution focused. So when I can't get that part of me met, I have to ask myself that question, can I change this situation? And if the answer is no, I need to let it go. And that's so much, it's so, it's easier said than done. 
But it's like, if you can't change it, then stop trying to control it. But it must also be heartbreaking to see that, because I'm assuming, like me, you're an empath. Yes. I've, I've went through a, through a stage recently where uh, I admitted to someone that I had feelings for her, and she gave me this long, uh, rather very transparent explanation of why she can't commit, and I, ex- I accept that, because... You have to give someone their space, and that is ultimately the establishment of a boundary, so it's up to me to accept it. That's I accept that 100%. But often, I want to shed a tear because there's still that longing. Mm-hmm. Is it irrational of me to think like that, or is it natural? I think it's 100% natural, and I think this actually comes down to emotional intelligence, which I believe that we all start to develop in early recovery. I mean, I don't know about you, but I cried more in early recovery than I had my whole entire life. And just like a baby, right? I was just like, what is this wet stuff coming out of my eyes? Like, I don't, I have no idea what it is. It feels gross. And since then I've learned that it's okay to not be okay. Mm. It's okay to acknowledge, you know what? I'm hurt right now, or I'm angry because if we don't, what happens is we start to suppress things and we suffer from anxiety like it starts to show up in different ways in our lives and that's the danger with not being able to say like you just shared what's going on or what had happened to you and to say you know i'm heartbroken i mean you know what happened to me a few months ago i mean my my partner and i ended up separating i was completely heartbroken so It was okay though for me to say, I'm not okay. Like my heart Mm. hurts right now. I'm sad. I don't know how I I, I should feel. And if I hadn't had the ability to do that and been like, okay, you know what? I should be strong. And if I cry, I'm weak, like get over it tomorrow. Well, that doesn't help at all, right? So that, that feeling we have to, we have to recognize it. We have to talk about it because that's what makes things, that's what allows us to heal. Very much. But there's a problem in that, and hear me why I say that. Sure, I'm all for it that we all have to talk about whatever it is that's on our hearts and whatever is causing us grief. But you can't talk about it to someone who hasn't walked in your shoes, friends and family alike. The one therapeutic thing that I can highly recommend is writing it down. Like writing a resentment letter, but even writing it down in the form of a diary, of of a a diary. A journey intro. (laughs) (laughs) Take three. A diary entry, a journal entry. Because no one's going to read it unless you hide it in plain sight. And uh, I find that highly therapeutic. And then plus also... Diverting your attention away from it by actively pursuing things that you like. I mean, for myself, reading is always uh, a a very big ball of helping to get over that initial setback. Mm -hmm. In fact, I know know that you'll know the name Michael Ironside, well-known Canadian actor, said in uh, an interview once that if you can't afford to go anywhere, and I know like me you've got wanderlust, you can go everywhere in a book. Think about it. But ultimately, when it comes to that point of where you need to start healing from emotionally, I think it is often often best 
to just for a couple of minutes or for at least the best part of half an hour to completely just segment yourself alone collect your thoughts and experience those emotions shed a tear shed a tear if you want to feel anger take it out on a boxing bag if you uh, feel anxiety lift a weight or uh, if you're not into weightlifting, have a jog jog around the block even with your mask on um, because it's really is that those endorphins that flow through your system helps to combat those negative bacteria if I could classify it as such mm-hmm and yeah I love well put and journaling I think uh, my personal opinion is everybody needs to journal because that's something at the end of the night that I can just do this brain dump I can get everything out of my head because we like to make up stories we like to fabricate things right we always jump to the worst conclusions and we do it since childhood oh I know and it's terrible and it's like wow (laughs) this got really big like they didn't even they weren't even thinking about me and here I've concocted this whole story that I'm the center of the universe and I've completely created this chaos that doesn't even exist but you know another thing I want to point out about what you said is sharing with the right people and I think that's some of the things that like one of the many things I'm grateful about recovery as I've met the right people to talk to right like I know that people that I choose to share what I've been through with they've been through something similar they keep me in the solution they don't keep me living in the past right because we're not there we can't change that anymore but what we can do get it out cry about it share how we feel and then have those people and that's why in recovery it's so important to watch what people do and listen and actually see them do it right because there's a difference between talking about it and actually doing it but you know watching them walk that talk them being able to get you out of the solution or into the solution like hey okay this happened and you know i feel for you big hugs what are we going to do moving forward and like you said shift that focus and go okay we understand we recognize we're dealing with trauma here but what is the solution moving forward and how are we going to make this better right how are we going to focus on what is to come next right because we have to move on Mm. And I'm betting now one or two people who have been in those situations are actually listening to us and they're saying to themselves in the back of their mind or shouting at a full volume that we can't hear, how do you know if the people that you are talking to are right? Well, I'm going to give my guesses and you can uh, piggyback or you can add your own spin to it. But I think the people who will help you write will not preach to you, but they're not going to spare the horses and they're not going to spare the rod. If they will notify in or notice rather any shortcoming on your part, they will tell you within a heartbeat, you need to change this. And often it's very firm and diplomatic, but never judgmental. There's a difference. But secondly, they will firstly give you a shoulder to cry on to get that off your chest. And then maybe they'll give you like a nice little slap on the cheek and say, all right, back to reality. This is the story left, right and center. You, <laughs> And often... This is what happened to me, and I'm proud to admit that I often thought it was the other person's fault, not thinking that I was at fault. But I'm proud of the fact that that there were people in my life who actually grabbed me by the shoulders and said, Listen, you need to work on this because you're acting the victim here, but you also contributed to this debacle. You need to start making right as well. So, yes, and if you can't accept that, well, sadly, then you're going to have to turn around and walk away and then continually bump your head until you are ready to listen. And then secondly, 
they will talk to you, and I hope you can uh, relate to this. They will talk to you in an almost a motherly or a fatherly manner. Like a parent unto a child, putting a bandage on the wound. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that was in in early recovery, I would always kind of hang out with people who would co-sign, you know, my stuff. And I actually had, you know, one of my first sponsors say, okay, listen, like, look who you're hanging out with. Like, is that what you want? And I said, well, no, but we're having so much fun. I'm newly single. Life is great. And she's like, Tamar, you gotta start to surround yourself with people who aren't afraid to hurt your feelings because they don't want you to die. And that that was, you know how you talked about the like, I I pictured when you were talking about the little slap on the face, it's like grabbing on the shoulders and slap, slap, you know, come on, let's focus here. And it's, it's true because some of the most impactful people in my life were the people who pissed me off the most because I would share what I was going through. And then they would call me out on it. And the same thing you said, it's like, what is your part in that? I'm like, what do you mean? What is my part? Like that, that person's just an asshole. Right. And it's it has nothing to do with me, but it's so empowering when somebody can, you know, help almost pull it out of you. And that's what I mm. like the most is when they don't give you the answer, they start to challenge you and say, you know, oftentimes I was told, how did that work out for you? I'm like, well, not very good, because if it worked out good, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. But also they tr- <laughs> they also drop hints. They know the answer, but they're not willing to give it to you. But they drop hints to point you in the right direction. And what I love about people like that is they're not professors. They're not doctors. They're people like you and I, young, spunky, sassy, young of heart. But don't get me wrong, yourself included, extremely literate but they don't boast it you get what i'm saying and they've got their own little unique trademark of bringing the point across that ultimately it hits home now i want to talk about a subject you recently got engaged to gene so you've got you've got a new adventure looming ahead and i'm sure you must be excited Uh, all those combinations of feelings i want to talk about something that i don't think is being spoken about enough and that's the concept of sensuality in recovery. Folks, make no mistake, even if we are in recovery, we are also people with feelings and we are also hot-blooded. Where do you draw the line? Where do you make exceptions? And I can't think of of a better person than Tamar to explain this. Look, if you want to go into a relationship, there has to be a certain amount of things. Number one, never date in the first year. Never, ever, ever. Because (laughs) I never did it, but I've heard horror stories, which will not be repeated on this podcast. But um, I think in your first year, it's your seedling year. It's your growth year. We are starting to eliminate a lot of factors around your recovery. Maybe, 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 keyword, you start doing your self-will run riot. So there's many hurdles to cross. But let's talk into the second or third year. Ultimately, there does come a time when Cupid's arrow is drawn back and ultimately it's led to fly. Now, I've heard mixed opinions on this. Now, I'm of the perception when true love hits, true love hits. But 
And here's another thing I have to make abundantly clear from the offset. It's not elusive. It's not elusive, even though the perception in society is love can be elusive and sometimes it's just better to sit on the shelf and, you know, forever in a day and wait for your impending day that you leave this earth. Balderdash. It says in the Holy Word, no man is meant to be alone and it's vice versa for the woman as well. But where does it start and where do you stop? I hope you can understand the long way of formulating it. <laughs> I think I get what you're throwing down. And by, by the way, that first year, that was probably the best advice I'd ever gotten because I did dabble. And I say dabble because I, I literally like went on a couple of dates and that went terribly sideways. And I was like, okay, now I understand why they say you are not emotionally ready and neither is the other person. Because I think one of the jokes I heard in, in when I first came into the program was, you know, what does an alcoholic bring on the second date? And it's a U-Haul, right? It's so true. Like, we fall hard, right? We're just like, oh, I'm in love. And so, yes, excellent advice. I think, I really think that should be a rule because it would mm. save a lot of us. But, of course, we have to go through. Um, yeah, no, Jean and I met actually in... Are when I was in my second year, and we actually have the same sobriety date. He's oh, four neat. Years, yeah, he's four years older than me and four years older sobriety. So we got sober at the same age on the same day, mm -hmm. which is very, very crap. So, I mean, that's how could you not have love at first sight? I mean, you know, really. And he, he shares um, that he has a two year rule, and I think he just right. met me around that time. So that's his new rule. Um, but you know it was interesting being with someone in recovery first of all because that person actually understood me right and i've also been you know my second year i was in a, a six-month relationship with someone who wasn't it was a lot more difficult you know they people tend to say oh i can take it or leave it and then you learn that they're actually an active alcoholic it's like whoa okay you clearly can't do that so lots mm. of lessons learned there but you know when gene and i first got together it was that like oh i can't believe like this guy is so amazing and he took me on these wonderful dates and there really is this and i don't know if you can relate but we get into relationships and i say i think especially as alcoholics and addicts and we want to hold on to that feeling like it's exactly like having that yeah. first drink right it's like absolutely we, right we chase that feeling and then you know, if you've ever read The Five Love Languages, if you haven't, I highly recommend my it. My favorite. My it's, favorite book. It's incredible. And we just started reading it. I reread it finally. Um, I read it first in my marriage and now before I'm getting married. And mm. so, you know, um, I think that's really important thing to know. But they talk about that, right? The first couple of years, you're in the honeymoon stage. Everything's great. And I think we're chasing that feeling. And then mm. we get into this phase in our relationships where life starts to happen and we start to get annoyed with each other and you're like okay you know i can't stand how you don't do this and we start to focus on the things we don't like as mm. opposed that when we were first in love the things that we really appreciated about that person i think that's where that first shift for me started to happen and then it especially doesn't help when you have people in your life that are like you should never settle in life you know you should if things aren't going well there's someone out there that's going to show you that love and it's 
I think we seek that forever in love feeling. And guess what? It doesn't, it's never happened in any of the relationships that I've been in. But as we kind of grew, you know, we had a big fracture in our relationship because Yikes. I was, I was, you know, growing, right? And Gene was doing his thing and he was content and he was happy. And so I decided I'm 45 years old. I want to move out on my own, right? I've never mm -hmm. lived by myself. And because of what he was doing, which was caretaking, that's not the environment that I wanted to grow up and grow old in. And so I took that plunge. And as a result, it had hurt him so bad that we, we ended, he ended the relationship, right? Because he thought, she's leaving me, right? And mm -hmm. what we learned over the next few weeks is both of us were incredibly heartbroken. He realized, oh my God, I'm going to lose the best thing that's ever happened to me in my life. Mm -hmm. And honestly, Chris, I felt like I was in a love story, like a, a romantic movie where he took, you know, three and a half weeks off work. He booked all the expensive restaurants down in Vancouver and Jeez. hoping I would say yes. You know, he started to get some outside help, work on his own personal development because mm -hmm. he knew he had to make changes. He started reading that book. Wow. And I thought, you know what? I have nothing to lose. I live on my own, right? I've taken that step. I had faith that if we were meant to be, we would be brought back together. So I think that was the first thing on my part that really started mm -hmm. to pivot things. But we've been stronger than ever because we were forced to start. Like, I always had one foot out the door. And I think because we're seeking that, I want that, like, madly in love feeling 24-7. And as soon as we lose it, maybe mm -hmm. there's something better out there. Mm -hmm. And I realized I already had that in my relationship. And so that has helped us develop a stronger foundation. And to, you know, a couple of weeks ago, he finally committed after seven and a half years and he I got the ring um and I just you know I finally have both feet in and I think that's the mistake right. that a lot of us make we have one foot out the door yeah and you've given me a lot of food for thought as well I mean uh, if you ever get the opportunity I'll send you the link after this podcast uh, Alice Cooper of all people giving dating advice now in the world of rock and roll much like with the movie business or anything performance related, it's a whirlwind romance, ring on the finger, honeymoon phase, and then all of a sudden, sex, drugs, and rock and roll kicks in. There's, there's a bit of divorce, and so much money is lost, and terrible nightmare. And he said, the first problem is, in a relationship, in a long-term relationship I'm referring to, and even in marriage, now all of a sudden the spark is gone. Because now you're treating, and I'm speaking from a man's perspective, you're treating your wife your wife, your spouse, like your wife. But in the beginning, you treated her like your girlfriend. Yeah. Why aren't you treating her like your girlfriend anymore? Why aren't you taking her out on dates anymore? Why aren't you as the man not still carrying on that trend? Because that's why the puppy love existed in the first place. And it gave me a lot to think about because, I mean, <laughs> respectfully said, Alice Cooper is between 70 and, and the hereafter. He's got one foot in the potential grave. And his wife is 10 years younger and she doesn't at all look old. I mean, she's a ballet dancer. She's radiantly beautiful. But it does provide a blueprint that we as the man, we do need to dig our heels in, like you said with, with, with your partner. We need to sort our shit out. I'm saying it plain and straight and simple here. And forgive me for, for, for using French language here. But it, sometimes it just gets the point across a whole lot more effectively. We as men 
need to sort our shit out, we need to know our place in the food chain, surely. We ne should never lose our identity, but we need to sort our problems out, we do need to realize that we need to make our partner our responsibility, not just that treat her like a like the wife, but treat her like your girlfriend. And in so doing, that fairy tale does start to unfold. Because I do believe romance is supposed to be a fairy tale. I mean, the Brothers Grimm didn't one day suck Cinderella out of their thumb. But uh, um, it, it can be if both parties work at it together. And Cheryl, his wife, jumped in on this and she said, it's not 50-50, it's 100 and 100. If it's 50-50, run. And that is, that is putting it as plain as simple as can be. But also communication, I think, is extremely important. Like in my case, especially, you know, I've had a lot of women come and go in my life and I'm, I'm appreciative of every given one of them because they've revealed a side to me that I'm, I've never known existed. But they weren't right for me because ultimately, what, do we, what happens to us in recovery? We grow up too soon. And apart from growing up too soon, if you try and, and have relations in some form or another with a normie, it's not going to work because they can't comprehend your mentality. So often it is better to take the road less traveled and try and commit to someone who's walked in the same shoes. And why exactly is it that two former addicts can't find love with one another? You know, it blows my mind. Yeah, and it's, I am grateful that both of us are in recovery because it's certainly helped. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's one of the annoyances too, you know, I'll sometimes just want him to listen and he'll go into, you know, recovery and the solution. I'm like, wait a minute. Okay. I just want to sit in my self-pity for about 10 more minutes. Like, why do you gotta, why do you gotta spring recovery on me this quick into the conversation? So, but I'm, I'm grateful for that. Right. Because he knows like if something's going on he'll just say babe it sounds like you're a little resentful here like let's work through this what's your part in it and i'm like and it is a gift right it's something mm. that i'm grateful because when i am feeling crazy i he knows what i'm going mm. through he knows mm. how what the what the, the solution is for it and one of the interesting things we just learned you know you talked about it being an empath and I deeply feel what people feel and it drives me crazy sometimes, but we were taught, I know, I'm reading a book on it right now, but you know, oftentimes when he's going through his own thing, right? And he deals with things differently than I do, stresses and stuff like that. And so when he's trying to process something and I can feel that there's something wrong and he'll be like, no, I'm fine, babe. Like to him, it's not a big deal. But to me, I'm like, well, I can feel like you are not doing well. You're stressed out. So we were taught that for someone like me, he has to say, right now I feel stressed because of this situation. The way you can support me is by just being here or by just allowing me to feel my crazy and just listen to me when I start to, you know, yammer on about something because as an empath, when we start to feel that we can hold your emotions right here but we also need to put it together right mm. because we will mm. start to make up stories of what what you're going through and what you're going to do to us and how you're going to affect us because it's mm. going to be your mm. fault right whereas that person just say this is how i feel and this is how i can support you the story stop and that was really powerful too in relationship right right, right. and plus also something that i thought about while you were busy talking about 
it sounds like a cuss word, but it is unfortunately a prevalent theme throughout the course of one's life, and that is just the occasional catfight. I'm trying to do this because I do admit I've got a bad temper, and it's just the fault of the male gene. And I'm not anti-man, and I'm not just this, and I'm not a feminist. I, I just believe in respect of both sexes. But you have to look at the pros and the cons and the faults of both genes. And one of the big genes, uh, gene faults of the male, is we like to sort things out with our fists. Why? Because we have a lot of excess testosterone and adrenaline coursing through our veins, which goes to the reptilian brain, which uh, causes aggravation or aggression. And especially with people who've had very bad upbringing, child molestation, violence and whatnot, I'm sure you must have heard of the term monoamine oxidase A, the MAOA gene, the warrior gene, the killer gene, might kick in and then there's a problem. But one thing I find is somehow you just have to diplomatically say, I'm not in the right space. Please give me a couple of minutes breathing space. Yeah. And the partner has, I believe, has to respect that. Yeah. Sort out the mindset. Sort out the mindset first, come back collectively after a few breaths, cool and calm, and then try and sort it out amicably. Yeah, and it's, you know, on the other side of that too, from the women's point of view, and not all of us are identical, but, you know, I find that, you know, Gene will oftentimes want to fix things, right? Because he is my protector, right? He's the mm, one that does mm. not want me to be hurt. And I've it. had to learn to communicate with him too and say, listen i appreciate you wanting to step up and be he-man and like fight the world for me like i love you for that but just have a seat and all i need you to do right now is listen to how i feel and give me a hug after that's all that i need keyword listen right he started doing that but as a as a trade-off too when he's going through things sometimes he just needs to be alone and i respect that so it, Mm. it is a key is communication and learning what your spouse needs from you at what time. Now, if I had to ask this, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but if you had to compare your love language to his, what is your love language and what is his? So my love language is quality time and Mm -hmm. words of affirmation, right? And it stems back from my childhood. His is touch and quality time. And the interesting part is when we were at our worst there for a while, he wasn't giving me quality time, right? Because to him, he wanted to be so involved in what he was doing, which actually was softball and it was an everyday thing. And I was begging him like, can we we go out on date nights? Can we do this? And it was always so tired. And I started to pull back because I'm like, okay, I don't know how to communicate effectively anymore. And therefore I didn't want to touch anymore, right? Because how do you want to touch somebody when you're not getting that quality time and Mm, so when he mm. realized like if i actually and i have to step up my game a little bit but he's recently started leaving his phone in the car when we go on date nights or we went to see my family i know and i'm like oh i probably should start doing that but we went to see my family and he left his phone in the hotel and he said babe it takes away like even hearing that buzz takes away from my ability to be present in your life and i was like (laughs) because quality time means a lot to me right and Mm -hmm. as a result i have become more affectionate 
I hear you. <laughs> Sorry, I was laughing because you knocked the bejesus out of your <laughs> microphone. I know, I get so excited. Well, I also use my hands. And that brings me to another topic which I think is imperative to the human condition, and that's a sense of humor. I mean, I love to laugh. I'm known for, for making people laugh through the way that I laugh. But we as... Come on, you've got to admit this, and I'm not steering this in a particular direction. I'm just stating a fact. We in recovery, we've got a very perverted and bawdy sense of humor. <laughs> look at the yeah. look on her face. <laughs> it's the, as soon as you say the word touch, my head goes in so many different directions. <laughs> I can't help it. Neither can I. I mean, I just laugh at the at the very thought of it. And then people would ask me, why are you laughing? Then I'll be like, no, you won't understand. If you yeah. try and explain it, there's just no clean manner of... of uh, of uh, trying to trying to clarify that because ultimately they're going to look at you with a weird face like you belong in a lunatic asylum. I mean, but I've often said this a lot to just the plain normies. Humor doesn't have any restrictions whatsoever. I do believe firmly that you, <laughs> there's a time and a place for everything and then there's certain things that shouldn't be said whatsoever. None whatsoever. Uh, but humor doesn't have any restrictions whatsoever. I mean, I'm going to give you a very good example. Uh, I hope you know the name, Stephen Fry. Yes. He appeared on George Strombolopoulos' Strombolopoulos, uh, Stro talk show one time, and he spoke about the difference between American humor and English humor. American humor is, insert any famous comedian of the time, uh, not Jim Belushi. What was that actor in Animal House who passed away? Made his name on Saturday Night Live. Pudgy character. Oh, Jack Black? No, before Jack Black. Before Jack Black. He was also Belushi. Uh, I'll get to his name. John Belushi? John Belushi. John Belushi from Animal House. He was a bully. If you remember, if you've ever seen the movie. He was a bully. A comic bully. But that is quintessentially a male comedian's persona. They're very broad-chested, they're very macho, they think they've got the biggest knob in the room. With English humor, it's more of a fact of, I've arrived at a party, but oh, I forgot my knob. <laughs> if you think about it, uh, one famous, or I should say famous, but a known Canadian comedian who followed that recipe was a gentleman by the name of Al Waxman who did a show called The King of Kensington. He was just this clueless personality of, he's got the best of intentions, but when things shatter around him, he just got this wide-eyed look about him, and he often, tend to, he often tended to say the wrong thing at the wrong time. And isn't that what we do in recovery? <laughs> My point being? Yeah. I oftentimes, <laughs> I'll find myself saying something out loud, I'm like... <gasps> It's like you want to pull it back. You're like, no, and it's so common, you know, and it's it's one of the other things that I love about Gene is he will just say it and he owns it. He doesn't even, you know, after he might be like, was that appropriate, babe? I'm like, yeah, really appropriate. But it was around people in recovery. So in my years previously wanting to impress people, I would try and seek that sort of validation. But now the thing is, is. If I say something, it's out there in the universe and I can't take it back. So I take full responsibility for it. I used to work in warehousing at the time. And sometimes you just get people who work on your nerves and they 
derive joy from working on your nerves. So they like to dish out, but they don't, uh, they aren't very keen, should I rather say, on receiving. And this one particular lady who shall run, who shall, we shall call person X, continually used to tease me, and I say tease in a very negative manner, she used to she used to really tear me inside out that the sea couldn't bathe, bathe me of sin. I do believe that a man should be presentable at work. Dress according to a certain dress code and be presentable, period. But when you're working in warehousing, it's dusty. There might be a bird that comes flying through and they might doo-doo on your shoulder. So you, it's a dirty job. Like the micro TV show, anyway. And she just made one too many snipes at me, and eventually I said, Am I supposed to look like you, a grease gorilla? <laughs> Instant shutdown. <laughs> she never quite forgave me for that. You can laugh, you can laugh, full chested. I mean, come on. It, <laughs> it, was, it was rude, it, and it was crude, but it was very funny. Because <laughs> I got a high five for it afterwards. <laughs> so. I bet. And sometimes people need to be put in their place. I hate to say it, but, you know. <laughs> but the age gap doesn't necessarily count. I mean, I was 24 at the time and she was, I don't know, between 60 and 70. Had a voice like a, like a horse that had just given birth. She really wasn't on the good end. I think her life was in such misery. But I mean, if you want to, if you want to be miserable, do it on your own time. Don't make exactly. a swipe. Don't make a swipe at a person to, to try and make them miserable with you. I mean, if you if you cry, you cry alone. But laugh, and the whole world will laugh with you. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, the other time in college, people used to ask me about the fact that I was still single. Am I seeing people on the side? And then I would just give them like this nice little smile from ear to ear. And eventually, I couldn't take it anymore because someone said. Why are you busy pestering Chris on, the, on his proclivities? I said, well, you know, it's, it's too understandable. It's jealousy. Because clearly my sex life is a whole lot more excitable than what his is. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Tamar, <clears throat> let's get back to the present. What is next on your agenda? Because you clearly are a woman of many talents and many plans. Ooh, I've got so much on that list. I'm actually just working out to try and tone things down a little bit because, I mean, I don't know about you. I have that shiny object syndrome where I want it all and I want it all now. But, Absolutely, yeah. You know, I would eventually like to write a third book. I love writing. Um, I do actually, I'm a contributing editor to, editor to, to um, brains magazine and so i want to mm -hmm. start writing some more articles about mind science and recovery right and how they how they've really that's helped me in my own recovery journey and so that's an area i want to focus in but mm -hmm. you know i also want to help people in recovery continue to do that bring people together and help them create a life so good for themselves that relapse relapse does not have to be a part of their story because i truly believe that due to discovering my purpose it has changed my recovery mm -hmm. recovery i apparently can't talk anymore tremendously right <laughs> and i think that is such an absolute gift and so for me that's what i want to continue to do moving forward and make a bigger impact and you know join forces with people and let's help people get people into recovery and and get them heading down the right path after that point right because there's a foundation but then there's that life beyond recovery. So that's where I want to focus. And here's a potential idea for your next book. Sensuality and recovery. 
positive relationship mm. building between your partner. Did you get goosebumps? I did. <laughs> I did. Oops, I did it again. <laughs> you did. I will give you a little shout out when that book comes out, Chris. Tamar, it's always a pleasure. I mean, it's been a couple of months since you and I last spoke. I'm proud of you of what you have done with The Road Beyond Recovery and your coaching. Congratulations to your impending engagements. And I'm going to say again on the podcast what I said to you in private text message. Be his anchor. He'll be your protector. Be his princess. He will be your king. All the best to you, darling. Thank you, Chris. I am the So it is here where we have to make a pit stop, but don't fret, we'll be back soon. In the meantime, tell your friends, join us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, and Podcast One. Until we see you again, this was having a cuppa for the week. See you soon.